No, those weren't towers. Those are completely something else, something a bit unexpected as we walk with Dante down toward the very bottom of hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we are slow walking passage by passage with our pilgrim Dante and his guide Virgil, now down to the very center, the pits of hell, the very end of all evil. As we walk down here toward the final revelation of evil. Wow, that's a lot to say, right? We're at Canto 31 of Inferno. We are at lines 28 through 45. I'm going to read it to you in my English language translation. You can find this on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. They all go to the same place. You can engage in questions about this passage. It's a corker as all of Canto 31. Is If you need to catch up, at least go back one episode from this one to catch up to where we are. <laughs> I'd really encourage you to go back 191 episodes and start at the beginning and walk with us in a quantum reality at any moment that you want through the infernal landscapes of Dante's imagination. But here's this passage. Inferno, Canto 31, lines 28 through 45. Then Virgil took me affectionately by the hand and said, Before we advance any farther, so that you might seem a bit less frightened, know that those are not towers. They're giants. Every one of them is sunk into the encircling pit up to their belly buttons. As when the fog dissipates so that we can make out things that have been hidden in miasma and mist, So peering through the thick and obscuring air, I got closer and closer to the edge. Error left me. Fear came to take its place, just as around its encircling walls, Monte Regioni is crowned with towers, so at the edge of the cliff that ringed the pit towered up half of the bodies of these terrible giants, the ones whom Jove threatens when he thunders in the heavens. Now we know that these are not towers around a city or the walls of a city, but in fact, huge giants who still look like towers. Let's <laughs> talk about that. Wild promised clarity, which is not clarity that happens in the passage. We want to talk about the simile in the passage, which is really workaday and why it's unusual. And then a bit about the historicity of this passage before we pass more into discussions of liminality. Let's get off to it. The passage starts that Virgil took the pilgrim affectionately by the hand. And this is more of the reversal motif of Canto 31. Remember I told you in the last episode of this podcast that this is a canto full of reversals of all sorts. Not only literary modes, but feelings and perceptions and sensations. Virgil has scolded Dante quite severely at the end of Canto 29 for paying attention to mass. Adam and Sinon and their insult match. Here, we're reversed. And now Virgil does an incredibly affectionate gesture, taking Dante by the hand. Virgil has been affectionate with the pilgrim before. 
taking him up in his arms to take him down into the third of the evil pouches of the Malabolgia of fraud to see Pope Nicholas III upside down in his hole. But this is one of those moments in which Virgil's affection for the pilgrim becomes pronounced. And I think that's important before we see the terror of what's ahead of us. Virgil is a reassuring figure, beyond reassuring. Listen, a teacher in a classroom can be reassuring, right? You can come up to a teacher after a class and say, I, didn't, I don't think really I understood what you meant about, I don't know, some, <laughs> some organic compound or Jane Eyre or some wild algebraic or calculus problem. And a teacher could be reassuring without being affectionate. But in this case, this teacher, this guide, Virgil, is beyond that of a mere explainer, of a mere natural theologian. This is, again, back to that paternal image of Virgil after that rather severe reprimand. Again, reversals in mood, perception, tone, intent. Virgil even reverses again. Virgil had said in the previous passage, well, the distance is too great. So you can't really see it. So, you know, come on, let's go more quickly and we'll get up to it and you'll see that these aren't towers. But then (laughs) Virgil doesn't wait for them to actually get up to the towers. Instead, Virgil explains it. That's again, notice a reversal or a change of, 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 of what direction or a change of intent. Before we advance any further, well, you're the one who just said at the end of the last passage that we were on, you're the one who said in line 27, you know, hurry up, spur yourself on, get moving with fervor. And then suddenly, before we advance any farther, so that what you see might seem a bit less frightening or so that you might be a bit less frightened, know that these are towers. (laughs) So we don't have to traverse the distance. Virgil's just going to tell us they're giants. Every one of them is sunk in the encircling pit up to their very belly buttons. It's such a great naturalistic detail. Here are these titans, these giants, and they're standing down on the floor of the ninth pit. There is a wall, and what you see above the rim is their belly buttons, and then on up them. From that naturalistic detail comes a very natural and commonplace simile, as when the fog dissipates, the passage says, so that we can make out things that have been hidden in miasma and mist. We talked last time about the natural philosophical problem going on here from Vitello, but let's just blow past that and say that this is a very commonplace, natural simile. Fog lifts. What we couldn't really make out, we can now make out. And now the pilgrim says, peering through the dark and obscuring air, I got closer and closer to the edge. Error left me and fear came to take its place. We want to talk about that in a second. But let's just talk about this commonplace simile. This thing is placed here after two extraordinarily learned similes in this pit. Remember we had that bit about Achilles' spear, the spear he got from his father, and how its first cut was wounding and its second cut was healing. And then in the last episode of this podcast, we had the Roland and Charlemagne bit. Those are two extraordinarily learned, highbrow similes. And now we get a very lowbrow 
simile. Just fog dissipating. I mean, something you might see off your back porch. Something you might see as you walk down a road. Think back how this thing has worked out. There was an insult match between Master Adam and Sinon the Greek. They insulted each other forever about their various ways of counterfeiting and betrayal of the Trojans in favor of the Greeks, that whole bit that they went on. Virgil then reprimanded the pilgrim, and we said it's possibly because the pilgrim is paying too much attention to low street comedy. Out of that, the poet instantly goes to a very highbrow simile about Achilles' spear, the spear that Achilles got from his father. And then just a few lines on, he goes to this extraordinarily learned historical reference of Roland and Charlemagne. And then he's back to the low stuff again. It's almost as if the Achilles and the Charlemagne bits are to prove that he can do the highbrow stuff. And then it relaxes back to this very commonplace simile, as common as the insult match between Master Adam and Sinon. I find the reversals of tone here from highbrow similes to very naturalistic, low-style similes to be part of the ongoing reversal patterns in the canto itself. Virgil had promised clarity to the pilgrim. He said, well, you're not seeing it right because we're too far away, so let's walk on. But then Virgil doesn't actually let them walk on. He explains it. But again, Virgil seems to have promised clarity and understanding. And instead, the pilgrim gets fear. And I think that this reversal is crucially important to what happens in Canto 31. Virgil promises, again, if, you know, they walk on fast enough and get closer, they'll see these are not towers rising up, but these are, in fact, as we now know, giants standing in this pit up to the belly button. We're promised that clarity, but it doesn't salve anything. Instead, as they get closer, the pilgrim doesn't say, oh, right, look at that, titans, giants, oh, cool, look at that. The pilgrim doesn't do that. It says, error left me and fear came to take its place in my English translation. It is not a moment of understanding or clarity. And this is what's so interesting about the 31st canto, Dante's insistence on illusion. Not towers, but giants, but, in fact, really towers. Well, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. It's this insistence on the illusion itself that somehow understanding doesn't bring you to necessarily a place of clarity. It can still bring you to fear itself. And the reason I say not towers, but giants, but maybe really towers, it's because there's a neologism, a new word coined in this passage. As he looks at the giants, he says at the edge of the cliff that ringed the pit towered up half of the bodies of these terrible giants. It's that word towered up, torre regievan. That is a new word that Dante has coined to describe these giants. If I had to put it in exact English, I would probably use the word 
enturreted, which makes no sense, right? There is no word in English enturreted, but that would be the actual translation. So at the edge of the cliff that ringed the pit, enturreted half the bodies of these terrible giants. The word there is turret or tower. They're not towers, they're giants, but then I'm going to use a verb that includes the word tower inside of it, thereby bringing me back to the original illusion. It's this insistence on illusion that goes on through much of Canto 31, this insistence on poetic illusion and the insistence on human feeling that is produced by illusion. We can draw this out, and it involves a little bit of the plot ahead of us, but we can still draw this out. The insistence on illusion makes you more susceptible to treachery. If you insist on not changing what you believe about people or justice or the world around you, you become infinitely more susceptible to the deceptions of those around you, especially those who have a close relationship to you. We'll talk much more about that in the weeks ahead. But just here, not towers, but giants, yet still poetically towers. Let's talk for a minute about Monte Rigioni. This is a town that is on the road between Florence and Siena. In the 1200s, this town built a series of towers. If you've ever been to northern Tuscany, you know that there was a great craze for the building of tall, quote unquote, skyscrapers in the 1200s and early 1300s. What are they, six, seven-story buildings, towers, buildings? But still, nonetheless, they're really kind of marvelous architectural feats for such an early period of Western engineering know-how. So this town had built a series of towers, and those towers were actually to defend against Florence. This town was fortified by Siena as kind of an outpost so that they could defend on the road to Florence. They could defend against Florentine encroachment. Later, all the alliances get reshifted. And in Dante's day, Florence and Siena become allies. They become allies because they're both controlled by Guelphs. And these Guelph allies in Florence and Siena attempt to repel the advance of the Holy Roman Empire into Italy. This town of Monte Regioni becomes one of the defenses against the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII's descent into central Italy. And you know already, I hope you know from this podcast, that Dante placed a great deal of hope in Henry VII, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII, and in his ability to descend into Italy and bring peace and order to this war-torn region. As you also know, if you've been on this journey with me, Henry VII dies prematurely, thus dashing Dante's hopes. But for this passage, let us say that Monte Regioni would be one of those places that attempts to repulse the Holy Roman Empire, which would be of no goodwill 
for Dante. Instead, Dante would see this as an attempt to push back that which could bring peace. He would see it as a treacherous act against an empire in which he puts many hopes for the peace of central Italy. Montaregioni here again alerts us that we are entering war-torn and potentially treacherous territory. Let's go back to that point from the last episode of the podcast about the liminal space. All of Inferno is a liminal space. Let me explain that for just a second. Inferno is poised between the classical and Christian worlds. Not all of comedy is, but Inferno is distinctly in the threshold between the classical and the Christian world. And we can see that here at the end of this passage. These terrible giants are the ones whom Jove not God, Jove, threatens when he thunders in the heavens. We've already seen a reference to Jove with Capaneus amongst the blasphemers. And again, we are continually being pushed into this weird spot between the classical world and this, the very Christian world. And part of it has to do with the problem of catabasis, and let me explain this. A catabasis, or a catabasis in kind of colloquial English, catabasis, is a journey to the underworld. It's a journey down under. There is a catabasis in Homer's Odyssey. There is a catabasis in Virgil's Aeneid, in which Aeneas goes to the underworld. The Catabasis in the Aeneid forms part of a model for the initial descent into Inferno here. We're going to talk much more about it later because, to be honest, Virgil makes hash, makes a mess out of his descent into the underworld in the Aeneid, and the mess he makes is part of the weird transition that happens between Inferno and Purgatorio. But we'll talk about that when we get there. In Catapasas, the descent to the underworld, there is always this moment. Um, it's the dominant moment of the Catabatic tradition. There's always a moment in which essentially the living are warned by the damned what not to do. So when we get with Odysseus down into the underworld, you know, we see these weird shades floating around who can't even speak until they, they drink the blood that he spilled out as an offering. And then he sees his mom and all that stuff that happens. But basically what we're kind of told in the Odyssey is that the afterlife is a weird place where people don't have memories. They kind of float around in an almost catatonic state. In other words, Live your best life up on Earth because the afterlife isn't much. It's just floating around without words, without memory. It's just being a kind of wisp of smoke and in a kind of catatonic state. It's very forbidding. And so the the message in the Odyssey is live your life to the fullest. I mean, go way out and take all the risks because what comes next isn't so great. In the 
Aeneid, we see certain people punished, but most souls in the Aeneid, in the Catabasis inside the Aeneid, are in a circle of reincarnation, and they're being purgated in the afterlife so that they can come back up to this world again. We'll talk much more about this when we get in the crack between Inferno and Purgatorio. By the time Dante's around, there are lots of Christian versions of the descent to the underworld, what we now think of as a non-canonical biblical book, the Apocalypse of Peter or the Apocalypse of Paul. And in these books that circulated widely, and Dante, by the way, knew the Apocalypse of Paul, in these books, the apostles allegedly go on tours of hell and they see the various torments. People are tormented for various things, a lot of sexual crimes. Uh, one of the things that's amazing about Dante's Catabrasas is that there is not a huge emphasis on sexual problems the way there are in so many Christian tales of this. But early journeys to the afterlife in Christian tradition are written, let's say, the Apocalypse of Peter, for example, at a time in which Christianity is not the religion of the Roman Empire. And so most of the damned, the people being tormented in the afterlife, are non-Christians. And of course, it's a kind of get back, right? We're being, we Christians are being tormented up in this life, but in the next life, ugh, all those pagans, they're going to be the ones getting it in the neck. As Christianity becomes the foundational ethic of the Roman Empire and then expands dramatically across what we now say is Western Europe, the whole journey to the afterlife changes. The majority of those damned in the apocalypse of Paul and later apocalyptic journeys, including Dante's, the majority of them are Christians. It's not that you go to hell and see the pagans. Go to hell and see the Christians who didn't do it right. And that's Dante's journey in so many ways. After all, we have seen so many figures down here in hell. Let's pick one, Pope Nicholas III. Let's pick another, Farinata. Let's pick another, Filippo Argenti. These, these fellows are Christians. Let's pick another, Francesca. These fellow, these people are Christians, no question about it. They would have been baptized. They would have been in the church, but they didn't live the right kind of Christian life. Can you see the change there from a landscape of a journey to the afterlife that is all pagan to a landscape that is almost solely Christian? Here's where Dante is different. His comedy, at least in Ferno, sits on the crack between the two. It's almost as if he's going backwards to older concepts of the catabasis, of the journey to the underworld, because he finds pagans down here. We don't have to go very far back, just a little bit back into the tenth of the Malabolja that we just came out of. And think about how that is a weird mix of classical and Christian figures. Master Adam, clearly Christian figure. Somebody basically from mm, a little before Dante's own day, paired up with Sinon the Greek, <laughs> long, long before Jesus, can't be a Christian. Think about the two crazed rabid souls, Mira, who tried to sweep, sleep with her father, a classical figure paired with Gianni Schicchi. Well, again, somebody who would have been baptized, somebody who would have been a quote unquote Christian. I mean, what else? They're, they're not a Jew. They're not a uh, Muslim. That person, Gianni Skiki, is a Christian. 
He's a Christian who didn't live right, who impersonated, tried to get himself in a will and you know all that stuff. But it's that weird mix of Mira and Gianni Skiki. That's the liminal spot of Inferno. It's right in the threshold between the classical and the Christian world. And even though Dante is pulled toward the Christian world, naturally, he keeps trying to set that foot back in the classical world. That's why choosing Virgil as your guide is so wild. It keeps you in the liminal spot. Any other Christian figure would pick I don't know, the Archangel Michael would pick a saint, would pick anyone to take them across the afterlife except a classical poet. By choosing a classical poet, you have stuck yourself right into the liminal spot between worlds. And that's where we are here with Jove threatening his thunder from heaven. Let's read this passage one more time. Inferno, Canto 31, lines 28 through 45 in my English translation. Again, you can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. But here it is. No funny voices, just the passage for this episode. Then Virgil took me affectionately by the hand and said, before we advance any farther, so that what you see might seem a bit less frightening, know that those are not towers. They're giants. Every one of them is sunk into the encircling pit up to their belly buttons. As when the fog dissipates so that we can make out things that have been hidden in miasma and mist, so peering through the thick and obscuring air, I got closer and closer to the edge. Error left me. Fear came to take its place. Just as around its encircling walls, Monte Regioni is crowned with towers. So at the edge of the cliff that ringed the pit towered up half of the bodies of these terrible giants, the ones whom Jove threatens when he thunders from heaven. Ah, just wait until you meet the first of these giants, because if you think you got this thing figured out, you don't have it figured out. It's going to reverse in yet another way. And just because you think these are those titans who threaten Jupiter Jove's reign, you, you don't have it right yet. In order to get there, come back for the next episode of Walking with Dante. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. A rating would be fantastic. If you drop down to the bottom of the Apple or the Audible page, you can see how to leave a rating. And if you see write a review, you can click that and even say just thanks. And I really appreciate it a great deal. Check me out on social media anywhere, on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter under my own name. There is a Walking with Dante page on Facebook, but it's not terribly active. But you can check me out on any of the social media platforms. And I can't wait to see you back here next time for the next episode of Walking with Dante because (laughs) things are about to change once again in the 31st Canto. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. Thank you.